Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I am your host, Dr. Amy. And in this episode, we are talking about parenting children who have had early life trauma. And this episode will specifically focus on a story of adoption. We're answering the question, how do we love our children to help them overcome and create the trauma of adoption? If you have never really talked with a parent who has adopted, this is that conversation that you need to have. If you are considering adopting, this is the conversation you need to have. If you are already an adoptive parent, this will be a balm to have a real honest conversation that is validating your experience that you don't get from others. If you have been adopted, this will help you understand yourself on a deeper level. In this episode, here's what you will learn. We're going to debunk some common myths about trauma and attachment trauma, specifically around the memories that adopted children have. Can we adopt them at an early enough age that they won't have memory of it? We're going to debunk the common myth that kids are resilient. We're also going to learn how adoption trauma can show up and be expressed in behaviors and why relationship repair is so important and what we even mean by that. Now, I have a special guest for this episode. I have with me Robin Carmorse. Now, she is somebody that I have had the privilege of meeting in person before. Robin, I don't know if you remember that because this was, I want to say ages ago, ages ago in Portland, and I had started my work with families, adoptive families, and working with some pretty severe kids on, on that attachment spectrum. And that's how I came across your work. I was diligently studying to help my own son and then helping other families and came across your work and it's like, oh my goodness, she's right here in Portland. And so I called you up and we met. So Robin is a family therapist. She's been in private practice for my goodness, a long, a long time. She's, she's very wise. (laughs) She's very wise. And she has done so much in terms of the work and understanding around early life experiences and has done some phenomenal uh, contributions to that field through her books and also the other work that she's doing. Robin, there are so many things that I want to go into with you. And so uh, I've, I've highlighted, you know what, like, I think that this would be the most um, helpful for our audience. Cause that's really what I want this time to be about is helping people really understand how this comes to life. It's not just studies. It's not just, oh, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, right? Like, and as soon as we go there, it's like, yeah, these are stories. These are real people. And, and like, I feel that drop into my heart already. Um, Cause for, for you, right? Like these have been real people in your life. These are not just studies. These, these are stories. And these are people who have greatly affected your heart. These, I mean, these are people in my life. These are real life stories and seeing their lives play out and, and knowing that bigger context, having that larger view, I think would be really helpful for the audience. So 
if it's okay with you, let's go into the story of Ryan. <laughs> I was so intrigued. I've thought about this ever since I knew that you might be interested, that you mentioned it to me on the phone. And I was stricken by that because it's the story. It's my story. It's the story of my child, a child I adopted. And it is a story that really started me on the track, the path that we're both on. Um, I was 24 years old and I had a three-year-old easy, easy first daughter who was real eager to have a sibling. And I, at that time, we belonged to zero population growth. So, and I, there were babies languishing in, in foster care and so on. And I really wanted to adopt a baby. And actually I've wanted to adopt a baby since I was a baby myself, because I didn't, I didn't ever have any siblings. I was an only child and I was raised by my grandmother. So I always wanted a big family. And we put in for the adoption of this baby. And I, I really hope to get a racially mixed baby. Um, that they were, those babies were piling up in foster care not being adopted readily. So I really thought that's what I wanted. But mo I, I knew enough about attachment that I wanted that baby early. So the agency was Boys and Girls Agency in, in Portland, and they called me with a baby at, who was already five months old or so. And I, I just, I said, no, I really want a newborn. And then I grieved, of course, that I hadn't taken that baby. So they called me again fairly soon. I had just written my master's thesis on adoption in Oregon. So I knew everybody who was heading up the agencies. And Stu and Esther Stimmel, who founded Boys and Girls Aid Society, knew me. And they called me. At that time, the effort was in matching something about the family to, and I said, please don't, don't worry about that. You know, I, I just, I, I would really like a racially mixed child. And they called me with a second baby that was four months old. He'd been in foster care for 16 weeks and they, he'd been held because he was born um, with, well, they were concerned about his heart rate had been abnormal and it was, of course, from the anesthesia that the mother had taken rather than a heart defect for this baby. But he had been placed in foster care with a Greek lady who had nine of uh, the care of nine other infants. When we got his name, real name is Cameron. And when we got the baby, I had at that time worked at Dornbecker at Children's Hospital, and I'd always been interested and had lots of babies around. but. Uh, they handed me this baby. He was 19 pounds at four months, handed me the baby. And he did one of these great back arches like this. I almost dropped him. My husband and my daughter and I were there at, at Boys and Girls Aid picking him up. And from the very beginning, um, this baby um, would not look at a human face. He would, he, yeah, I could hold him. And I could try to bring his little face around so that I could have eye contact. And he would stretch back and he would look 
at a bright light or a shining object. And this was in the adoption room, in the room where we first held him. We went from there to a restaurant uh, with the baby. We hadn't eaten anything and we were, we, we had him in the restaurant. And again, he, he really didn't want to be held. He's tiny. He was a small, like a young baby, not, not a tiny baby, but, a, but a young baby. He didn't want to be held. And he was very interested in inanimate, shiny things but he wouldn't look at us. So I, I kind of thought it was an attachment issue. There was no diagnosis at that time of Asperger's. Didn't have the name even in my reach for another 15 years. But I just thought I could love him through this. Whatever it was, I, I, would, I would do it. And after about three weeks, I was back in the, in the, at Boys and Girls Aid saying, I feel like the janitor with this baby because he doesn't, you know, he would, he would take, he, at that course, being adopted baby, he, I, I nursed my other babies, but I had to do the bottle thing. And he would take bottle after bottle and then vomit. Bottle after, he had no sense of being, when he was full, it was just, so I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I know to do. And my daughter was, of course, three and was all real, real ready to have a brother and watching everything. And he didn't want much to do with her. He kind of looked, he kind of looked at her, but he didn't connect. He didn't look in her face. He'd, he'd watch her a little bit. And she was kind of, mommy, why can't, you know, why, is, why, why can't I cuddle this dolly? And, and I was kind of feeling the same thing. I, I wanted very much to be able to have his little body mold and to relax, but he couldn't. My husband, my ex-husband now remembers the night that he allowed two fingers on his back rather than one while he was sleeping. And it took, I wondered, I wondered when he began to get older and sit up and we talked to him, I wondered if he might be deaf. I wondered if he might be delayed, uh, intellectually delayed. Um, but most of all, I wondered whether or not I was making any difference. And so, um, Again, I went to the adoption agency and said, I'm worried about this. And the reaction of this woman who was not just a social worker, but she owned the agency was, isn't he lucky that he has a mother who's a professional and, you know, like, <laughs> I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't really let her know how vulnerable I really was to what was going on. Um, within two months of the time that we adopted him, I think, I think because I was so longing for a baby, I was pregnant. And of course, he was only about 14 months when the baby, when the new baby came. And of course, that was the, naturally a baby that just a perfect cuddler and wonderful and all the things that I'd longed for. But Cameron, who had been walking kind of 
uh, all of a sudden decided he wasn't going to walk and he was going to be <laughs> competition for that baby. He didn't like that. He didn't like that. I, he, it's not that he didn't like it. He was just shocked by this baby. And if only I'd known how much um, my being totally devoted and capable of caring with only of only Cameron, I would have I, I would have really gone out of my way to not getting pregnant. But I had two babies and he, um, Cameron was a beautiful baby. He had red curly hair, gorgeous baby, uh, big. And Jason was this little and um, looked, you know, like our family, dark hair and blue eyes. And I put them like I put them in a grocery cart to go shopping Jason in the infant seat and Cameron in the sitting up seat. And um, people would sometimes come around, you know, say, oh, this cute baby, whatever. And Cameron, I remember very clearly Cameron being in the checkout line, another woman coming up behind us and reaching to pat his hair. And he kicked her so hard. I mean, he just whacked with his those little hard shoes that we were just beginning to give them and um he just couldn't connect with he couldn't make you feel as though you were uh as though you were getting through to him um and that went on um for quite a while and he didn't get language and so I, I was in school and doing a second master's and thinking maybe this is uh, autism because the language wasn't coming. It did come at four. He came, came at about four, four and a half in full phrases, you know, he refused to walk, especially with the, the new baby. We had to really work with that, but most acutely, he, if I asked him to do something, he'd set his chin and he'd go for the opposite, whatever it was. And it was very, very scary. So in the middle years, and I'm, I'm not sure why I did this, but I, 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 I couldn't stand how far he got from connecting. And I would put my first and third children down for at night and I'd go and get Cameron and I'd take him to the other end of the house and hold him and talk to him. And he wouldn't, you know, he would, he'd look away and ignore me. And finally I got to the place that I laid him down on the, on the floor and I got on top of him, held his head like this, and said, Cameron, <laughs> in a big voice. And what do you think he did? What do you think he did, Amy? Can you imagine? He I, mean, I, I can, I can run, run, run through a couple of things that, that uh, I've seen other kids do, but I'm, uh, yeah, what happened? He'd smile. Yeah, exactly. And he'd look at me, mm -hmm. and it was like I had broken through. Mm -hmm. And for days, mm -hmm. he would be there. He would be there. And then he would drift away, drift again. And for a while, 
he we had him because he had he developed a little bit of asthma, not terrible, but some. And so the doctor put him on prednisone. And prednisone brought him around. Go figure. I don't I don't know the I don't get what was going on there. But in school, he was um, a quietly obedient, never naughty kid, never much communication with anybody, uh, did okay, uh, liked to, I mean, he, he really didn't get like any kind of outdoor sports or that sort of thing. He was kind of lost when it was playground, but he was not a naughty boy. He was a sweet boy, uh, except with his siblings. And that was a whole different thing. I thought I could take any baby, whatever was wrong with them, love them, and they would be my family. But I, it, it took me a long time to realize the toll on the other kids of Cameron always taking their stuff. Always, you know, if there were three lollipops, he got all three of them. He'd just snatch them from the other kids. And it was very hard for the other children. And we did not have a diagnosis. We finally took him to a neuropsychiatrist. And she originally thought when I brought him in, he was about 11. And, and I told him, I told her this neurologist, his story, and said, I wanted a full uh, psych neuropsych. And she said, and why would that be true? And why do you what do you what are you wanting from this? And she treated me rather strangely. But she clearly didn't think that this sweet boy was any problem. He just followed her into the other room. <laughs> she said, I'll need about two hours and you can come back and pick him up. And I did. And the woman was as white as a ghost. She said, I sure see what you mean. I mean, she had taken him into a room and he'd wandered around and gone somewhere else and taken some stuff from her desk. And it was just. She said, you know, she didn't, she truly didn't know either, except she talked about um, real differences in his temporal lobes. She, she said, I can't tell you what this is, but I can tell you that there are differences. So I truly didn't know, even at the time that I wrote Ghosts, I, I can see that I, I went back and read it after you and I talked. And so even there, I said, Cameron is a college student. He finished college. It took him 10 years, but he did it. And Cameron is a specialist right now on politics. And he's pretty good about history. And he's pretty good about airplanes. I mean, he, he knows. And he would be lovely to meet. You would enjoy meeting him for about 10 minutes. And then you would notice that there were kind of some behaviors that were a little unusual. But he has, to his credit, made it through college, but uh, that's the story of Ryan. <laughs> the story we told in the book. Was there was there early trauma? 16 weeks of being in this place could have hugely in, <laughs> informed the behaviors that we're talking about. Um, so we know there was neglect. He came to me with running ear infections in both ears, nose to toes acne, and uh, um, a really terrible cold that he that he had, um, diaper rash that was bloody. I mean, he had not been cared for. 
So could that have been a piece of it? Could his being adopted, her knowing the whole time that she was going to give him up and his severance from that, that mother have contributed to this? It could have, but I don't think we really know. What we really know is that people who adopt need a whole lot more resources, a lot more uh, thoughtful guidance and support Mm -hmm. because especially when children have gone to foster care and there have been multiple placements, the things that you would do with a child that hadn't had that experience are very different than the things that you do to support a child with that experience. And that's, that's where I would love for us to go, Robin, because I mean, and I'm just uh, kind of like going down memory lane as you tell your story, because there were so many similarities with my adoption story yeah. with my son. And it's even down to the words that the social workers would tell you. I'm like, I yeah. got that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like it must, must have been in their manual. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Part of the training. Part of the training. Right? Isn't he so lucky to have such a mom like you who's so uh-huh. educated? Yeah. 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 I'm like, yeah. I'm like you, don't, you don't get it. Like I yeah. even... I don't know what to do to get through to this kid. Nothing that I'm doing seems to be making a difference. Exactly. It's not even landing. <laughs> it was wonderful to watch your head nodding as I was talking because I knew that you knew. But it's a very bizarre story to tell some folks to somebody who yeah. doesn't know about that and who hasn't had that experience. And very often with that experience, the mother is made the bad guy. Yes. You no, know, there must be something in the what you're doing that, causes this child, you know, and I do think that there's this conception that we had going into our story of that. My love is going to be enough for him. That's right. That's right. Well, how, you know, we all got that, that that's Mm -hmm. what we believed. And so for, for outsiders who haven't had this experience, yeah, they, they, with having still that conception, all good. You must, you must not be loving him the right way. You must not be loving him the right way because love would be enough. That's right. That's right. And especially for you having gotten him at four months, right? Like right. there are still many people who, <laughs> who would say he's not even going to remember those first four months. That's exactly like, what they say. It's exactly what they say. And that's exactly what they did say. But uh, I think those few months, not only, not only the four months that he, that he was in foster care, but the, the several months as a fetus. Um, yeah. And, and again, for those people who want to go deeper into the brain and the science stuff, read the book. Cause that yeah. is exactly like what Robin does is goes into the, the studies and the science of it. So you will, you will have all of, all of that substance that you want there in the book. And one thing that I'd love for us to move towards, Robin, is helping um, understand, given given those circumstances, given foster care, oh my goodness, right? Like, I think my son had had over 20 placements, not placements in homes, but transfers and moves. And we're going to put you in this house here, but it's only temporary because you're going over to this house here. And so, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just um, and again, with the perspective, all that kids are resilient, mm-hmm. that should be fine. <laughs> right. But if that were stainless true, steel. this stainless steel and no yes. problem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'm, I'm even thinking of other 
children in biological families that are going through a stressful time, right? Like maybe the parents are divorcing or maybe they're going through this big change and a move. And there's so many things in our, in our daily lives today that can be stressors and how important, how valuable that structure and that routine can be for their nervous system to go through that period of time. One thing that you talk about in your books, Robin, which I would love to kind of use this as bringing hope to moms right now is you talk about this idea of repair. I do. Yes, you do. And I love you for it (laughs) because, and you, and you say it so nicely in your book because it's, it's, it's not even optimal for 100% all the time attunement and that perfect connection. That's actually not what's going to be best for the brain development and for the nervous system. It's this capacity to, oh, there was a misattunement and repair. There was a disconnect, maybe even a physical distance, and now we're going to repair. But that repair piece, I think, is one of the most forgotten, and maybe we've not been taught it. And so that would be like the last piece to kind of bring this bring this time together at, to a full close would be this talking about this repair piece. And what does that look like? How would a mom do it? And why is it so important? It's, it's very interesting that you talk about that that you've got a highly intuitive sense, Amy, because I've just been dealing with this exact issue with my firstborn grandchild. I want to back up a little bit and talk about repair in general with all relationships. It doesn't matter if it's a husband or a daughter or a son or a friend. In a close relationship, the whole crux, that that which will make it either close and real or set it back to not really being what it could be is the ability to repair every single relationship that you ever have, including with your child. There will be times when the other, when one person or the other does something that is so hurtful that you just, you just feel like you can't get over it. It's horrible. And we're taught to really defend ourselves. And so we put up thoughts in our mind about, well, that's they're obviously their problem. <laughs> it's obviously something that's wrong with you. But the minute that they let you know that they're hurt, whoever it is, whether it's your spouse, partner, whoever, your child, The minute you see the hurt or you hear the hurt from them, the ball's in your court. This is no longer okay to stay in that hurtful place. So you have to go to mend the hurt. And that means you. You have to say, I'm so sorry. Not, I'm so sorry that you're so miserable, but rather, I'm so sorry that I caused you to feel this way. And I want you to know. That is not my intention. And I want you to know I will do, you know, anything to make this better between us because it's a mess right now. And I want you to be there for me and I want to be there for you. And so let's talk about what we're going to do. And it's it's working that out and not being so defended that you don't want to go to that place. Authority. I'm the parent. Or, <laughs> you know, in a relationship, I, I get into this with my husband. We're both real good at being the boss. So 
one of us has to yield most of the time. And it's not easy. It's not easy because the ego is a real trap. But whether it's doctor and patient or, or anybody, you have to go to that vulnerable place in yourself and own your part in the hurt or the disconnect and ask for forgiveness or the equal participation in fixing it with the other person. Is that, is that what you're talking ah, about? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And it, I'm just thinking of uh, kind of got this image of a young child and their parent. Mm-hmm. And how important it would be for that child to have that kind of a repair. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure if that has happened <laughs> well, <laughs> much or with, <laughs> but how powerful that would be for them. Because not only are they experiencing that, it's like a deeper trust with that person. Right. That I know that even if something happens between us, that we can fix it. Robin, thank you. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, mean, I, say, I say thank you. And I mean that like on all of these different levels. Thank you for this time today. And thank you for your work. Thank you for how you uh, are showing up in the world. Thank you for your willingness to. Thank you for how you're showing up in the world. And what a wonderful thing you've done here. Mm. A really good thing. Mm-hmm. And I hope you keep it up. And I hope your audience gets bigger, bigger, bigger. Vince and I are depending on you. (laughs) Thank you, Amy. Really, really nice. Mm -hmm. Good luck to all you parents. Mm -hmm. All you parents are doing the most important job of any. Really, the one that will stick with you all your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your kids' life. That's right. It is the most important work. Mm -hmm. And thank you for joining me for this episode. As you may or may not know about me, a huge motivating factor for me that got me into this work that I do was my experience adopting Miguel. I say he was my initiation and my inspiration for becoming a diligent student of trauma and the search for practical tools to accelerate the healing journey. Little did I know I would need to apply all these tools to myself as my own body began to express stored trauma and physical health problems. Talking to Robin about her similar experience really highlights the deficit that exists around supporting parents, supporting the mom who ends up adopting her child, and supporting the adoptive parents, the mother most of all, a topic that we will go into deeper on another episode. But I want you to share what really landed for you from this episode. You can do that in the show notes. And so click on the link to go to the show notes and just share your gut reaction to one thing that was shared in this episode. This will help me to know what specific topics you want me to go deeper on around adoption and attachment. Was it that a child who experienced trauma in early years won't remember it and so won't be affected? Is that what hit you? Or maybe it was around how our early attachment becomes stored in our body, creating our template for relationships and our capacity to navigate change and stress. Maybe the importance to not need to be a perfect parent, but rather to learn the skills of repair of a relationship when we have those breaks. Well, thank you for joining me today. I very much look forward to reading your your comments in the show notes. And I will have links for you in the show notes for resources. I will include links to my attachment trauma roadmap 
This was the roadmap that I created after working with Miguel and then over a hundred other adoptive families. And then myself, this was the attachment trauma roadmap that I put together. And I also need you to know the biochemical imbalances that most contribute to mood and mental health, especially in those who are adopted. I also want to offer you an attachment-focused biology of trauma health coaching session. Yes, this is a one-on-one health coaching session that you get to have with my trained team. And we have an attachment-focused biology of trauma health coaching session that we have put together. And so the intake forms that you will be filling out ahead of time will be looking at your health symptoms, your current health symptoms, through the lens of attachment and neurodevelopment and stress and trauma. I will also include links to what I see as the most important supplement that you need to be on if you have had attachment trauma. And this would be magnesium. Magnesium is actually one of the most common nutrient deficiencies across the states, the world, and especially in those with chronic stress. Trauma being the biggest cause of stress in our life, your body is likely running deficient. And that will lead to even more stress and trauma. So let's not do that. Let's help resource ourselves and shift out of a biology of trauma. And so I would want you taking magnesium during the day. I will have links to that. It's a powder that you can pour into your water and the magnesium for sleep because you do need to be getting good sleep in order to help shift your body out of trauma patterns. I am your host, Dr. Amy, for this biology of trauma podcast. And until next episode... Lots of love. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey. And you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.